Welcome to another edition of the Gary Anderson F1 Show. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, joining me is the star of the show, former Jordan and Jaguar technical director, Gary Anderson. And this episode is all about what our listeners want Gary to talk about, a special Ask Gary Anything episode. So for this special edition, we've asked for questions from our YouTube audience. If you've not seen our YouTube channel yet, search for The Race, where you'll find multiple videos released every week. Recently, we put out eight things Williams' new owners need to do next. F1's new payment details explained, a look back at Ferrari and McLaren's abandoned IndyCar projects of the late 80s, and there's also free and live coverage of Super GT, Super Formula and the British GT Championship as well. Uh, if you're wondering how we ask the questions, check out the community section of the Races channel, something I must admit I never knew existed, but it's well worth a look as we now post all sorts of interesting things there. And remember to follow Gary on Twitter on at Gary Anderson F1. This episode's also being released on our YouTube channel, so for those of you listening on YouTube, thanks for checking it out. And if you like what you hear, you can listen to Gary's thoughts every week. Just search for the Gary Anderson F1 show on your favourite podcast platform. That's enough from me. Gary is, as I say, the star of the show. And I'm just going to open up with a really important question, Gary, which is how often do you get mistaken for the world darts champion, Gary Anderson? Uh, That came from Giara. And uh, Arne also asked how good your darts game is in comparison with what he calls the real Gary Anderson. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Who is the real Gary Anderson? You know, he needs to be stand up and be counted. Um, I think my darts games might be better than, than the other Gary Anderson's uh, racing car design. Um, I've, I've hit the odd bull. Uh, now and again, I'm not sure that I was actually aiming for it, but I've hit the odd bull. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, he's a very famous guy. Um, and it, it sort of, uh, whenever you look on the internet or whatever, looking for for uh, somebody or somebody looking for me, it's always interesting that the, the darts player comes up. Much, much more often. So obviously, he's made a he's made a bit of a fan base. But um, yeah, lots of times, you know, people have, have asked me, "Do you play darts?" You know, um, mainly, mainly joking, to be honest. Um, but no, it's it's uh, it's interesting because uh, someday we must meet up, I think, and have a chat over a pint because that's what darts players have, isn't it? A good pint of uh, of beer somewhere. But yeah, I've been confused a little bit with him, but not too much. I've known a few race car designers who like the odd beer as well, so it's not just uh, not just darts players. But I'm pleased we've uh, we've addressed that important issue. Uh, so let's move on with the questions. Lots to get through. Uh, Surya Vikas asks, "Why does Ferrari have such a bad chassis apart from having the slowest engine?" Vettel constantly complains of lack of rear. Uh, why can't the team improve with such resources? Um, I think it's, it comes basically from a bit of a false sense of security. You know, if we if we do look over the last couple of years. There has been something going on in the engine department that has meant they've had um, an exceptional performance from the engine, and that's all gone away. But while you've got that, and you know the car is quick, and you can win the odd race or be in the front row fairly often, I think the team gets a bit of a full sense of security because you know it doesn't understand its deficit. Really, they could, whenever they had a good engine, for example, they could run more downforce in the car. Uh, they could. Um, stabilize the car with that and not really pay a big price. You know, when they had a bad a bad race in 2018 or the early part of 2019, they were probably, you know, fourth or fifth or something on the grid. And that just comes from the fact that you can set the car up to suit the inadequacies of the chassis because you've got that extra power. So it's a spiral to nowhere in a way. Um, you know, the most, the most important thing is you have to be realistic about where you are with everything. Um, you know, they haven't done... I'm saying that they haven't done a great job in just developing the car itself either. You know, they haven't 
they haven't moved on since I think it was they came out with this concept in 2017 with the side pods and the and the um the way they did the, the crash structures it might be in 2016 even but anyway they came out with it you know early on with the crash structure outside of the front of the side pod leading edge and moving the side pods back further to get it further away from the front wheels and give the barge bores more opportunity to to uh, to work better and most teams have gone that route in one way or another, or to one to one uh, level or another. But but Ferrari haven't moved on from there. So they, you know they shot their bolt, and then they've sat there with what they think is you know a, a good concept, and and it probably is. But they just as I say, they get this false sense of security from the engine performance they had, which was deemed to be uh, against the regulations. And um, suddenly you find yourself in the situation you're in now, where you've got to do all of that work. You've got to catch up with your engine program somehow because what you've been getting has been, as I say, near the mark as far as legality has been concerned. And obviously the FIA have stepped, have stamped down on it. Uh, and also on the way the chassis has dropped behind. So suddenly everything, you know, all the eggs in the basket have all broken um, and they have to fix everything at the same time and they're not getting there with it. So it's a tough one. And, you know, re- sort of resurrecting it will take time for sure. I'm not quite sure that Ferrari have that time within the structure they have. And I can see them starting to change structures quickly and dramatically to try and at least get one of those areas, the engine or the chassis, to a level where it's um, it's a much better package. Uh, the next question draws on MotoGP and probably alludes to the uh, the concessions rule they've got there. This is from Ari Mahmood, who says, what are the challenges F1 faces adopting in the MotoGP structure where customer teams regularly compete for podiums? Most importantly, MotoGP riders can actually make a difference. I want to see F1 drivers to be great warriors. Uh, Kimi Lewis also asked a similar question about equal or fair racing in F1, similar to MotoGP. And of course, we should say that fresh from uh, fresh from KTM breaking through as a winning manufacturer, Miguel Oliveira won the Styrian Grand Prix for the for the Tech Three satellite KTM team. So that that's just a testament to how well it's working, isn't it? It is a testament to how well it's working, and I completely agree with both of you with your questions and the fact that. You know, it is real racing. You know, you look. I watched the race at the weekend, and there wasn't a second of it that wasn't having some sort of excitement here and there. Um, even if it's just you know a driver catching up from behind, you know they they, they can do it. Okay, a motorbike's smaller than, than a racing car on, a, on the same track, so there is more room for manoeuvre. But it, it's not like that either. You know, a racing line's a racing line. If you want to be on it with a, with a, a motorbike, you've got the fastest racing line is always the fastest racing line. And you've got to put one up the inside. You've got to do sorts of, some sort of uh, daredevil maneuvers. Now, you know, at the end of the day, each rider has to survive, has to look after himself. Um, so he's not going to do something stupid, or very, very few of them do things that's really stupid. You know, their survival is, is a, the biggest basic instinct. But the way that the, the formula is spread out with the privateer teams and the, the fact that the, the teams that aren't so good like KTM had, you know, the concessions so that they get more testing and they can have more engines or however it all works. I don't know 100% the detail of it. It does mean that if you're not performing well, you do get an opportunity to, to get yourself up there. Um, you do have more than two bikes. You've, you know, you've got your your privateer team as such, and they're all they're semi-works teams. They do work for, with, the, um, with the manufacturer quite closely, so there's no, there's no real super independent team. And I think in Formula 1, to be honest, and, and this is no slur on anything, but you could take the Mercedes and the, the Racing Point team, and you could take um, Red Bull and um, and Toro, uh, Toro Russell, I was going to say, um, whatever they're called, Alpha Tori, 
you know, you could say there are good examples of that, but because of the regulations in Formula One, they can't exploit it to the to the level they want to. Really, um, again, Ferrari and Haas. So, is it what Formula One wants? I think Formula One will always fight against copying what, what makes another formula successful. But it has been very successful in, in, in MotoGP, and I know whenever they came in with the control ECU and that for the MotoGP, you know, Honda, the big boys, all fought it. And, and then they discovered that actually it doesn't do any harm. You know, you're still, you've still got bigger budgets. You, you can still employ better driver, riders. Um, and you still can go out there and win if you get all, the, all the, the parts together. But it's great to see a privateer team win a MotoGP race, um, especially with the KTM because, you know, they've been the underdog, but they've got a good little bike right now. So, um, yeah, I'm sure a lot could be learned if Formula One wanted to follow MotoGP, and I'm sure it could be a lot better. But I don't think they'll want to do that. They all, everybody wants to create their own ideas and their own formula. Next up, we've got a question from Alex Kay, who says, if F1 cars had movable aerodynamic elements, would drivers be able to cope with the G-loads? Um, well, I think to a certain level, yes. I mean, the drivers can cope with the G-loads. Um, it, it depends. You know, the G-factor is something that's just a, the constant. If it's, uh, if it's too high for too long, it gets a bit troublesome. I went to... Uh, I was working in America at the time whenever we had the first um, race in Texas, and it's a one and a half mile oval from memory. And they'd been there testing, and they were doing you know speeds of two hundred and twenty miles an hour average speed. It's a pretty fast little track, well banked. And we went there for the for the race weekend, and on the Friday suddenly the speeds were two hundred and forty five miles an hour average, and no problem. Everybody went round and round, and then there was I think it was only one incident really, nothing dramatic happened. Um, Somebody spun, I think, on a, on a bump in the pit straight. I was, yeah, I think it was Maurizio Guzman, actually, uh, from memory. And the next morning, you know, for Saturday practice, suddenly there was a couple of cars went out and did a couple of laps and came in, and nobody was running, and everybody was wondering what's going on here. And actually, it was the day after the drivers had, you know, suffered too high a G level, and they were suddenly getting in the car and going out there, and they were suddenly feeling dizzy again whenever they just started to push. So it was the day after that affected them. And the, the race end, ended up being cancelled because the, the G-level was too high. And drivers were, they weren't passing out because of the G-level. But whenever they got back in the car and started going fast again, it made them dizzy. So you have got to be careful of it, obviously. And it couldn't be, it couldn't be too high. So there's a happy medium somewhere. I think the, race, the cars today, you know, pulling, what, 4G laterally, um, in long corners and pulling 6G, 6.5G under braking in spikes, that's quite high. So I wouldn't like to see it go much above that, to be honest. Yep, still uh, still a fair bit of stress on the drivers. But yeah, I guess if you had unfettered uh, aero, it would become problematic. Moving on to a question from Nick. Uh, says, is the Red Bull made for Max Verstappen, the Mercedes for Lewis Hamilton and the Ferrari for Charles Leclerc? Can a car? be designed more for one driver and disadvantage the other as a result uh, we also had a few other questions asking about this kind of idea of designing a car to suit a driver and, and how that works so so is is it something that you can really do well the trend uh, the trend in design or the sort of priorities in design will come from from driver input you know some drivers like the car to be a little bit over like the car to be free in other words you know the rear of the car they don't mind the rear of the car moving a little bit. Um, Kimmy's an example of that. He doesn't mind the rear of the car being a bit light, but he just can't live with understeer. Um, other drivers, you know, like Jensen Button, he hated the rear of the car to be light. Um, so there is a tendency towards how you 
how you would look at your aero maps um, as far as optimizing it for the driver that sort of is there to give you the best return. But it's never it's never really as black and white as that. You know, you could you couldn't design a car that basically would suit one driver and not the other one at all. Even if it is understeery or oversteery, you can always change the balance a bit here and there to, to bring it back to basis. But there probably will be a point where the car is is at its best to suit the driver that has most input to the team. And that's why, you know, a sort of number one driver sort of comes out of it. Because he, you know, he he pushes for what he wants. Um he he likes a certain way the car has to handle and if he if you get that return from from every time you put something on the car that's new, that's developed to suit that situation, if he gives you back lap time because he goes faster, then you, you tend to sort of go towards that direction. But to sit down black and white and design a car right now that is going to be um to suit an understeery driver or to suit an oversteery driver, it's very, very difficult to do that. I think that evolves through time as you sort of get the setup of the car sorted out and, and what what of your two drivers or who of your two drivers gives you the best lap time return when you do uh, get everything in the right direction. Uh, the next question, again on, on design, quite a broad question from Tentacles45. says, how do you even begin designing a car? You know, there's always leaders out there. If you... You'd never design anything from new. If you're going to sit down right now and, and say, "Okay, we're going to design a, um, you know, a six-wheeled Widgeman flip with the drive wheels in the middle," you know, there is some reference somewhere that you can look up, see if it's been done before, how it's been done, and then you work from there. You know, we talk about this clean sheet of paper. You, you never really have a clean sheet of paper. Um, I can only go back to sort of '91 for our first Jordan. Um, the first F1 car that designed. Been involved with F1, seen lots of F1 cars, um, you know, been up close to lots of F1 cars, engineered some F1 cars, engineered Formula 3000 cars, but never sat down with, as we call it, a clean sheet of paper. And I was determined at that point in time that I wasn't going to just pick up the best motor magazine at the time and read through it and look at pictures because I felt I needed to know, or we needed to know as a team, what the car was was consisted of um and we ended up following our own path following our own aeromap route um you know the diffuser and that was quite different in that car front wing was different lots of things were quite different in that car but it was to follow our route for sensitivities um how the car worked under braking uh, you know downforce wise it was a, a sort of unique piece of kit in a way um it didn't have the downforce of others but it had good downforce and that was important for me because we were going into a year of of um, you know, a pre pre um, pre qualifying for at least six months, and a year of unknown circuits we've never been to them before. You know, so we had to get the best out of the car pretty quickly. And the only way we could do that was to actually understand the car. So you sit down with a clean sheet of paper, and you put things on it that you say, okay, I I want to do that because because of this. I want you know the driver's situation, the steering wheel heights, all that stuff. You have to sort of work out those basics, and then you normally would build a you know, a sort of mock-up thing and set a, set a driver in it to find out the steering wheel is in the right position, the gear chain is in the right position, all that sort of stuff. But the, the actual design and development part of it, I think you have to do it all to suit what you understand and what you want from the car. Because then when it comes to the circuit and, and setting it up and optimising it, you can get the best out of it. Another question on design, this one from Aniko Tutor, is what are some of the techniques you used when you were designing cars, i.e. music, silence, or, or just plain thinking? Um, 
I I like peace. Um, you know, I didn't like the music in the background. Um, I didn't you know, like phones, anything like that, personally. I, I like to get peace, even still now, currently. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't do stuff with the TV on in the background or, the, or music on in the background. I need to concentrate and focus on what I'm doing. And that, I think, you have to get away from that other stuff. Um, some people are different. I'm not. Um, thinking about stuff, you know, I've, I've seen myself driving the car for, you know, two or three hours and not even knowing where I've been because you're just thinking on stuff. And that's the time when you get that piece, you can you can sort of evaluate things in your head, think of other solutions. Normally when you come to sort of scheme them up, they're just rubbish because, you know, you, you, there's lots of things you haven't thought about. But at the end of the day, it, it sort of stimulates your thought pattern a little bit here and there. So I like peace, I like to focus, I like to concentrate, and even still at the moment, as I say, I don't like to be interrupted whenever I'm involved in some something question about uh, the regulations uh, from damien gay says adrian newey got bored of designing f1 cars to restrictive regulations do the new regulations for 2022 inspire an engineer like yourself or do you share his point of view um they, i think they would interest me for a year and then i think it would get quite boring i think at the minute there's there's room to think that there's there's an advantage to be found somewhere if you can dig deep enough into it they're very uh, prescriptive um, so it's 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 not going to be easy. Um, if you step it back just for you know a year or even to this year as such, I think the regulations are, they're 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 required, but the, it takes away you know any sort of concept thought. You know the, you can't think now of doing the Brabham fan car, or the Tyrrell six wheeler, or you know none of that stuff. There is no room for any of that anymore. If you look you know back at times and you, and you look at the Brabham fan car, or the Tyrrell six wheeler. They were um, they were big major concept changes, but there's no room for that anymore in this in, in the regulations the way they are. So it's all about fine detail. It's all about minute detail. And that that detail had to also be done on on the Brabham fan car and the Tyrrell. But you had a you know you had a, a, a difference right through the whole company. You had people that would optimize stuff, and then you had people that would come up with the concept and follow it through. Um, and I think we, you know, we've got to a point now where that's all taken away, and people like Adrian Newey, um, you know, they're starved of of what they're really capable of. Um, I would find myself starved in what uh, I'm really capable of, of achieving, because I, I'm not somebody who loves to just do this little fine detail and, and just optimize it. You know, whether you use a, a three millimeter screw in this thing or a, or a four millimeter screw, you know, that's just fine detail. You know, the turning vanes on the barge boards. It's it's one degree changes on it, you know, or a square corner instead of a radius corner it can it can make massive differences. But they're all just small detail stuff. It doesn't really enthousi- uh, make me very enthusiastic about design of a Formula One car. A question now from Hugh Parizzi, who says, "What's your favourite constructor to work for?" You know, you'd have to say it was Jordan. Obviously, we, we set the team up, and it was great to be part of that. And, and Stuart Grand Prix when I went to work with Jackie, both Eddie and Jackie were were. Um, very different people, um, but both unique to work for in their own little way. Um, so they were, that was obviously very nice. I think um, looking back at the sort of older days, now I work from Bra- for Brabham. Um, that's where I sort of learned most of my trade in a way. Um, Gordon Murray was somebody who had he had time for everyone. Um, and when you're trying to sort of build your reputation a little bit away from being a mechanic and to development and stuff. You know, it's important to have that. And Gordon would take the time to sort of talk about stuff with you. So that was a great time as well. So I don't think there is a favourite. I think they're all different. Um, 
as far as constructors today are concerned, you know, to be honest, I like a challenge. So I would have said that the, the challenge that's there that probably could bring you the most return would be Williams. Um, and the fact that they have, they have most of what they need to do a good job and they just need some help to do that job. But uh, I'm not saying I want to go there and work by any means. Um, just saying that that would be the team I'd look at now as, as the potential for a successful future with, but not achieving it at the moment and needs a, a restructure to achieve that. Connor Skidmore says, if every F1 driver in 2020 drove an identical car, how big a gap do you think there would be between 1st and 20th? Maybe less than what there is now, but there would still be a gap. And I think any formula shows that. There's always going to be one at the front and one at the back. Um, if you take F2 or F3, as we know at the moment, any any formula that's really a one-make formula, um, like the Indy cars, you know, there is differences in how the team operate, what the driver wants from the car. So although the car can be the same visual-looking piece of kit, you know, there's a hell of a lot inside of running it correctly and adapting it to the driver's needs and obviously the driver's the driver's level as well. So there'll be a you know a one to twentieth on the grid. The gap, as I say, might just close up a little bit because the difference in the drivers from from one to twenty at the moment is less than the difference in the cars from one to twenty. So you would say it would close up a little bit. I don't know what it would be. It's hard to say. You know, if you take a general average um, over whenever we see competitive cars, you're usually looking at a tenth to two tenths of a second being Mr. Average, you know, between two teammates um, in the same car. So you'd have to just extrapolate that through. So the grid might end up being two seconds from front to back if it was that close or knocking on the door of, of maybe three seconds. But I think it would be smaller than what it is currently. A question from David O'Reilly, looking ahead to the Belgian Grand Prix this weekend. Your cars and their antecedents as far down as Force India have always done well at Spa. What design philosophy caused this? That's a tough one to answer for anybody, I think. But I think one of the things that we did push for from the very beginning of, of Jordan was the sort of efficiency level. And I think it, we had... Um, we sort of bought into a different, a better efficiency level than most teams because I think we we felt that they were never going to get the top line engines. So you had to have a car that was pretty efficient aerodynamically, and uh, so your straight line speed was reasonable. Uh, how that happens, you know, you just, you basically have a a downforce level from from A to Z that you can generate, and that, that each of those downforce levels gives you um, a drag level, and that drag level is. You know, relative to the horsepower you have, gives you the speed in the straight, and you pick a point on that on that curve where you do most of your development um, around. So you you develop the car. Let's say now I'm just using these figures at the top of my head. Maybe your efficiency curve goes from three to one, let's say, to four to one, and you pick a point in that curve somewhere where you feel there is most races uh, the level you would of downforce you would use. There, most races are at that sort of level of downforce. So you pick, let's say, you know, 3.6 to 1, and you'll develop the car around that point. Um, you'll optimize the car around that point. And then each side of that, you know, you'll put stuff on the car that isn't um, isn't as well refined, I suppose you might call it. And that would, you know, you'd put bits in the car for Hungary and, and Monaco that hadn't got the, the time spent on them, or you'd put parts in the car for, for Monza that hadn't got the time spent on them. But you'd always optimize the car around a certain point. And I suppose we picked point at that time of around Spa 
And, you know, maybe that's just stuck. Maybe that's just the area where they optimize their car at. Other people might optimize it for a different level of downforce, just you know, a bit higher downforce or a bit lower downforce and do all their work around that. So it's a difficult one to, to really know, to be honest, um, what happens and how it's happened, how it's been so much continuity. But I'm looking forward to this weekend with, um, with Racing Point and their, their pink, whatever it's called these days, um, because, you know, they have a good car there. They have was showing that they've got two pretty good drivers and just be interesting to see if they can reap the benefit of Spa that's been very good to that that uh, factory in Silverstone up to now, no matter what the name was. Another related question from Louis Messier is that George Russell has complained about the Williams being too draggy on the straights. What makes this a difficult problem for Williams to solve and what are their options for addressing this issue? Well, it's probably exactly the same as what I'm talking about. You know, they've... It's quite funny because whenever this this hybrid era started in 2014, they were one of the cars that you would have said was was the most efficient on the straights. I mean, they were very, very quick in the straights. They had as good an engine as Mercedes, but they're always faster than Mercedes on the straights. And they were com- competitive-ish with Mercedes. So they, were, they weren't too far out of bed. And then they went through this era of having a bad car. Um, and they've probably changed themselves now on their, their pursuing getting more downforce on the car at the expense of efficiency. Um, and you can only do that so much. As I say, every circuit has a, a, a compromise between straight-line speed and cornering. Spa is a typical example of one that's going to be quite difficult. You know, the first section at Spa, it's all flat out. You just want low downforce and mons of wings on the car if you could run them. The midsection of the track requires downforce, so you put downforce on for that. And the last section of the track is... Like the first, it just requires straight line speed. A little bit more downforce because of a couple of corners on it, but not that much. Um, so you end up with a, with a, you know the compromise that allows those three to to happen. The thing you do have uh, at Spa, or any track, you've got the horsepower you've got. That's the thing that doesn't really change too much. So you have to compromise the setup of the car to go with the horsepower you've got. And as I say, Williams... I've probably done the opposite to to um, what Racing Point will have done for this year. Um, they've tried to pile downforce on the car to get the tire grip, um, and at that they've, they've paid the price in drag, and the car is very draggy on the straight. So, you know, so it, it is a compromise. It's a balancing act between the two. Um, there's never a, a, a simple answer to it, but Williams can go away and, and fix that. I mean, they can run different wings on the car. It's all adjustable, but whenever they do that, then they haven't got the downforce. So. All they can do as Williams is to get the best downforce to drag compromise they can for the best lap time. And whatever that best lap time is, that's where they stand at. And that's where you need to start developing the car at. So um, they can learn a lesson from this if they have gone that route, but they need to learn it quite quickly. Next up, we've got a two-part question from Tristan Cooper. The first part is, why is no one using counter-current flow radiators? And the second part is that most of the exhaust energy is in the blowdown pulse. By separating this pulse from the residual exhaust gas stream, a large reduction in back pressure could be achieved. Why is this not being done? So first part first, counter-current flow radiators. It's probably worth defining them before you get into the detail. Um, Yeah, counter-current flow. Um, Basically, you've got an ambient temperature and you've got a water temperature. Let's say the ambient temperature is 30 degrees. The, uh, the water coming out of the engine will probably be about 120 degrees. These cars run very, very hot. So the best cooling is where that 30-degree airflow hits the 120-degree degree water. Um, 
And as the, radi- as the water cools, it'll probably go back into the engine at, you know, 105 degrees or something. It doesn't cool that much. But sort of at the other end of the radiator, you've got the water coming out then at 105 degrees and you've still got 30 degree ambient. So you have less cooling efficiency. It sort of happens in the design of the, of the ducts. Um, you know, you, you do, obviously, if you've seen underneath the side pods of one of these cars, it's a fairly complicated piece of kit. Um, the radiator, you know, you pack everything into, this, into the minimum area you can. So it's all fairly, it's all fairly compact in that area. But the duct design would be such that you would have the, the mass flow where the hot wa- the water's coming into the radiator. And if there's any re- any reduction in flow, like at the top of the radiator, where the radiator itself is smaller, you would have um, less airflow going through there. Um, but you, the thing you want to do is to make sure that the airflow through the radiator is fairly uniform, just because you don't want any areas of separation. And you know if you've got an area of separation in the duct because of a corner somewhere, then you get no cooling in that area. So... You'd say it does happen sort of automatically. Not, it's not a sort of a defined thing that they do. Would it be better? You probably could look at a fraction better cooling um, if you could really optimize it to the tenth degree. But you, you know, you can't quite do that. So, as I say, everything I use this word compromise far too often. But everything has a compromise, and uh, to exploit that to the maximum, you'd probably end up compromising something else. So you do the best you can within the constraints of how you flow the, radi- the water through the radiator um, so that the, 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 there's more hot water mass in there at the beginning and there is cool water mass coming out. Um, as far as the exhaust pulses are concerned, it's probably just because of the regulations. I, I, I sort of agree with what you're saying. I don't, I'm not you know, the biggest um, understanding of, of the exhaust gas pulses, um, of something that I haven't really been involved with. More, I've been more involved with the airbox and how the and the normally aspirated engines, how the airbox worked with the pulses of the trumpets uh, inside the airbox and how the pulse in one trumpet can affect the pulse in the next trumpet. And if the firing order is not right, the two of them see each other and it, it does make a big difference to the power and the fuel used. Um, but as far as the exhaust pulses are concerned, you know, there is a very restrictive exhaust system in these cars, a single turbo. Um, V6 engine and the, the exhausts—you can't do much with them, to be honest. You've got the single turbo with a single outlet, and you got two wastegates with a, or you got a wastegate with a, with the twin outlet, and that's it. So you, you can't really do much with it. So I don't know what it would take to exploit this exhaust gas separation, um, but it probably would contravene the regulations fairly dramatically with the constraints that we have currently. And the final question that will fit in is from Robert Wilson, who says, is it only a matter of time until F1 becomes a completely electric series? And if so, when do you think this will happen? Well, I certainly hope not. Um, You'll tell when it happens, because that's the day that I'll probably hang up my pen. Um, You know, because for me, the the Formula One, the noise, uh, the speed, it all comes from that. I really, really don't really like the electric side of things completely. I mean, I was once almost run down at a fuel station when a Toyota Prius came in to get fuel in it and it was run, running on electric. You know, why should an electric car come into a petrol station? That's the first thing I'd like to say, but it almost ran me over. Um, but, you know, it's one of those sort of things. I think the noise, the, the glitz and glamour, we have to have a formula that is still fossil fuel driven. Um, I think the hybrid thing, it's okay but it does just take away from that pure 
spirit of of you know noisy high revving massively powerful engines you know the v10 thing was at you know twenty thousand rpm knocking on the door of a thousand horsepower that was real engines i suppose for me um that's what if i had to sort of sit down now and, and say i'm going to build this super formula that would be the direction i'd be heading in with engines maybe not the twenty thousand rpm you'd have to cut back on some things just to restrict it but then you just put in a fuel a fuel uh, usage that you can do it's all it's all quite possible now so you cut it back that way um but I don't, I don't foresee it going fully electric. I think there's room for an electric series, and we've got that right now. But it's, it's not, it hasn't got the glitz and glamour of Formula One. Well, I'm sorry to say that is all we've got time for. So apologies to those whose questions we didn't get to. Some of those we didn't answer have been tackled in previous episodes, in particular last week's, where Gary judged various listener suggestions for ways to improve F1. So perhaps check back, check back for that episode if you had a question that was a little bit more about F1's current regulations. Thanks very much to everyone who asked a question. We're going to keep doing these Ask Gary Anything episodes uh, relatively regularly, so please keep them coming in. We we do appreciate it. Uh, we're going to turn our attention now to the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa, and we'll be back next week with more from Gary. 